0: And welcome back to the Entry Level Podcast, where we talk about being entry level at both your career and in life. Because we believe if you're always learning and growing, you're always going to be entry level at something. We have a special guest on today's episode, Jeff Tippett, and I'm really excited about our topic today because I think it's a skill we can all work on. Today, Lindsay and I are going to talk with Jeff about persuasive communication. So, Jeff is a speaker, author, and entrepreneur. He has published one book called Pixels is the New Ink around branding yourself in the digital age and has another underway to be launched next year, specifically on the topic of persuasive communication. So persuasive communication can be an effective way to change the minds and behaviors of those with whom you disagree and who doesn't want to do that. So with that said, welcome to the show, Jeff.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit and maybe have some fun sharing some ideas.
0: That's Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. So to get us started, I kind of gave a, a brief definition of what I could find persuasive communication to be defined as. But can you give a little bit more background on what it is and maybe what the difference is between standard communication?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when I tell people that I speak on persuasive communication, the typical response that I get back is, ah, oh, you teach people how to manipulate others. <laughs> um, and oftentimes that's that's our what we think. And it's really not people's fault. I, I understand what we've gone through sales training or had different types of training. And maybe we've learned like little phrases to say, to make somebody do what it is that we want them to do. And so it, oftentimes people do think they're the very same thing. But manipulation is like the far opposite galaxy of persuasion. And manipulation is is defined this way. It's to control or to influence a person or situation, but to do it cleverly, to do it unfairly, or to do it unscrupulously. And we have probably all been on sales calls when the person is just going and going and going, and we'll give up that credit card number just to get them to stop talking as they continue to push and push harder and push harder. So we understand manipulation and persuasion on the other side is a really beautiful thing. And, you know, as I say in my book that we all live or die based upon our ability to persuade. It doesn't matter if we're the CEO of a company trying to move it forward or if we're in sales or if we're a sales manager or if we are a middle manager, if we're an entrepreneur, if we're entry level, um, or if we just don't want to live alone for the rest of our lives, that we all have to be able to persuade. And persuasion is defined this way. It's to call someone to do something through reasoning or argument. And the argument here is the purest form of the word. It's not like what we see in our political discourse today where we're you know, just beating up on each other, but it really is like the reasoning and bringing forth points back and forth. And it's to call someone eventually then to believe something after a sustained effort and at which point they then accept it for themselves. So, at this point, what has happened is when we go through persuasive communication, it might be in sales or maybe for a date or whatever it happens to be. When we reach that point where the other person is in the same place that we are and we have communicated, and there are lots of steps that we can talk through on that. But there are two magical words that I look for at the end of a conversation or at the end of a sales, at the end of whatever's going on to know hey, Jeff, did, did I manipulate or did I persuade them? And those two magical words are, that's right. So when a person looks at me and says, hey, Jeff, yeah, that's right. What I know then is that at this point, the reasoning that I brought forth, the reasoning that I put forth to the table, that they accept this reasoning for their own as well. They see their own personal benefit, their own win in this situation. We're on the same page and we're deciding to move forward together because we both want to. And that's persuasion.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that that differentiation between the two. And I work in marketing. So I feel like I see that and I feel that every day when we're trying to tell our stories around our products and our offerings and trying to shift the narrative away from you need to buy this now yeah. <laughs> to to like helping people understand why there's a value for them way before we put any product in front of them. And I'm sure Lindsay in sales, it's probably similar like you have yeah. to have a certain tone around how you're talking and and help people get there themselves before you try to get them there
2: yeah i mean benefit. yeah i find it interesting when we were going to be talking with you about persuasive conversation and communication because i've had to sit through a lot of lectures on this type of stuff with my job but what i find interesting and what's helped me understand persuasive conversation and communication is that it's not, like you said, it's not being manipulative. It's not trying to trick people into doing something you want them to do or catch them or throw them off guard. I think the way I think when I think of persuasive conversation, it's a big, it's a lot of listening exercise. It's a lot of listening to what they're saying and trying to figure out how to get them to yes or get them to understand your side without kind of coming at them in a manipulative way. So I agree with what you said that some people look at it the wrong way. And I, I found that in order, the most persuasive I can be is to is the better listener I am if I listen to them well. I'm able to form conversations better. That's kind of been my experience.
1: Yeah, and I would agree. In fact, like one of the chapters in my book, when I, I'm talking about how we position messages, you know, I talk some about binary versus non-binary options. And sometimes we think of just everything as binary, where it's black or white, yes or no, this way or that way. Where like what you guys are talking about here, when you're having a conversation, when you understand their needs, and from my perspective, things fall into one of three buckets. You know, health, wealth. Or relationships. All of our needs are in one of those three health, wealth, or relationships. And when we understand what it is, what we offer, right, what it is that we're bringing to the table, and we listen to them and what their needs are, sometimes that requires a non binary approach where we, we may not even come out exactly like what we thought or exactly what they thought, but at the end, it's something that we both like and we can both be excited about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I see I, I think we talked about this earlier today when we were chatting, but I see this this shift in how people are moving towards more persuasive communication, even on social media and, and different channels as they're trying to build personal brands. And I know this is something that you talk a lot about is like, how can you integrate? persuasion and persuasive communication into your personal brand. And to me, like I talk a lot about personal branding and how important it is and the value in it. And I hadn't necessarily connected the dots before I read your book. and then But then it was like a light went off. Like, yeah, everything everything we do, it's about trying to persuade others of our expertise, of our value or what we're bringing to them. And so, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what are some things that people can do if, if they're just starting out and they're trying to build a personal brand or get their to get their expertise out there, you know, how do they integrate this type of communication into what they're doing?
1: Fantastic questions. A few like pointers up front and then we can kind of go into that. So I strongly advocate that brands are held in the eyes of those looking on. So I may like try to say what my brand is, but actually my brand is held by people who are looking on. My job, my role in this is to give them clues as to how I want them to perceive me, how I want them to, to think about me. And the second thing, like before I get into all this too, is that whether we're building a personal brand or not, whether we think we are or not, we actually are. And sometimes the things that we're not doing is actually building that brand. And that's how people are perceiving us. So I don't think it's even a choice of do I do it or do I not, even if we're not actively building our brand and figuring out like, like who we are and what we're trying to put forth, even not doing that is a brand because that's how people are perceiving you as they, as they look on. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Lindsay and I, we talked about this on a prior episode and I was saying, you know, what people Google about you, whether or not that's what you want it to be, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, you're in control and you have to be the one who steps up to take control of it. Otherwise what's out there is the perception. And if you don't do anything about it, then you are doing something about it. <laughs> so it, yeah, <laughs> I, I totally understand what you're saying there. So
1: a, a few pointers in for building that, that brand. And I advocate that it's, It doesn't matter what it is or what you're doing. That you can probably find an area in which you can be an industry expert. That you can have knowledge that other people don't have. And sometimes, like people, as they may wait too late. Like they may wait till they actually need a job when they're trying to figure out, like, oh my gosh, I need to be doing this or I need to be doing that. I say, do it now. Go ahead and build. Why bother sending out resumes if you can build yourself up so that people are chasing you down? So how, how do you do that? Become the industry expert. Become the go-to person. And the thing is, you don't have to be a generalist. You can be a specialist in a very small area, but be the, the person that is like one that other people point to. So like, that begins by understanding your skills. What expertise do you have? What are you good at doing? What do you love to do? What are your top three strengths? So understanding yourself. Right. This isn't creating something that you're not. Who are you? What are your skill sets? and then figure out who you are. Some people refer to this as your unique selling point or your USP. Another word that's used here is the word onlyness, meaning this, what is it that's unique and special about you that's different from everyone else around? And that might include your your hometown, it might include your education, it might include some experiences, you know, one of the things for me is adopting a baby from third world country, my background in, in communication, working with some great clients, but figure out you. So if you understand your skills, you understand who you are, and then look for your audience. And, you know, it, especially with today's online world, it's so easy to begin finding your audience and finding out who that group of people are that would... Be interested in what it is that you're sharing or, or what you're saying there and building out that audience there. And then figure out how you start communicating, how you start sharing information with them. And over time, and staying consistent on message, staying consistent on, on what you're building out there, you can become the industry expert, becoming the guru. And especially when it comes to persuasive communication, it's like it's like a magical leap. like It, it jumpstarts. If people look at you and say, oh my gosh, that's the pro. That person knows more than anyone else does in this area. It's so much easier for then for you then to persuade them and to to bring them along because they already have high regards for you.
2: That just reminded me when you when you were just going through that. I feel like when you when you become an industry expert or you're in your job for a certain amount of time and you're relied upon by management, by even your friends or in a different situation. That what I always think about is you want to be the person that when you're sick for the day or you're not there or you're not here that they want you there because you Mm -hmm. add value. And I think that, you know, being part of persuasive conversation is a lot of value add. And that's to your, I a hundred percent agree with you when you said, be the industry expert, be the best at what you do. I agree because if you are, then you're, you're valued and people want your opinion because you base it up with facts and, and good communication. I mean, I've seen that help a lot of people become successful and a lot more happier with what they're doing. Yeah, and you currently. can even start
1: within your company, right? You can find your area and you can be the go-to person within your company. And I promise you this, here's what will happen. Over time, as you do push that out further, especially if you can use social media and online tools, you'll not only be the expert in your company, if you decide at some point, hey, I'm ready for the next major leap, you'll have people reaching out to you saying, hey, you're the pro at this. We need you here in our company. Would you come and join us?
0: Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's a big one, I think. And also that ability, you called out a couple of things that I, I wanted to touch on a little bit more, this ability to relate to somebody. I feel like when I'm, you know, going back to like people who I follow on social media or something like that, there are people out there that I've never met in my life, but who share such compelling, interesting content to me that adds so much value to my day as I'm scrolling or whatever that I mean, I'm loyal to them. Yeah. <laughs> like I've never I've never <laughs> met them in my life, but I would I would fly out and meet them today and I have this trust in them because of the content that they share, even though I've never met them and you know, who knows what they're actually like in real life, but they build this brand and this perception of themselves through their content, through their value add, that I think the ability to relate to somebody, I think, and, and have that even though you don't really know them, you feel like you do because they're vulnerable and they're sharing and, and they're adding value to you. And I think that that is something that is huge for, for anyone looking to do and, and they don't need to
1: wait. Like, like, figure this out, Start figuring this out now. When you're ready for a job shift or even if you decide you want to go out and become an entrepreneur and start your own company, it would be so much easier when you have that brand recognition out there and people know you're the one who does X.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you also talked a little bit about adopting a baby from third world country. Can you talk a little bit about how that has defined your brand and and kind of you know how that's led you down this path a little bit? Sure,
1: absolutely. So my story with the adoption, my father had gone over to Haiti to do humanitarian relief um, and he came back and asked to have dinner with me to tell me a little bit about his experience. And I agreed to meet him halfway and have dinner. And I wish I could tell you that that I did it just to hear more about the story, but he's actually going to one of my favorite restaurants. So the menu won me over and I'm like, hey, yeah, dad, I'm there. But it, it changed when I got there. He pulled out some some photos. So he didn't just have them on his phone. They were, these were like yeah, the real, real photos. Pulled out the photos and started telling me the story of a ninth grade girl who was their interpreter. She was in an English speaking Christian school and she had gotten pregnant. And the school gave her an option of, Giving up her baby or quit school and drop out. And she's looking at her life thinking, you know, uh, being in this school, learning to speak English, getting an education for Haitian is one of the best things that, that she could do. So she made the gut wrenching decision that she wanted to try to find a home for the baby. So my dad showed me the pictures. I remember like looking at this baby and I don't know what it was. It's not like I had thought about adopting, it was not like my dad tried to persuade me. In fact, my dad was shocked. When we had this conversation, but I looked at this picture of this baby who was about five months old at that time, and I just immediately knew that I was drawn to her, and I knew that the next step for me was to adopt her. Didn't have any desire to adopt, never planned to have adoption, didn't know how to do a third world adoption, but I started the whole process. And within the process, I would say it was the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. It was I did it in six and a half months, which is. A record time for, given what I was doing, international and all that was happening in Haiti at the time. But it was six and a half months of the hardest times of my life. There were times that I just wanted to throw my hands up. Sometimes, actually, I did throw my hands up and just say, I quit. I can't do this anymore. You know, Things weren't lining up. But the next morning, the sun would come up and I'd be refreshed. I'd be renewed. And I'd be ready to go back in and tackle because I had this why inside of me. And I knew that I needed to do this. So started the process, you know, there were times I would flew over, probably whenever about a half dozen times with her during this process and had a chance to meet her, get to know her, fall in love with her. You know, there were times that it just collapsed. At one point, that I was told that, that no one was showing up in the office where I needed a document signed. And so I flew over it every single day. I'd go to that office and I would just sit. I'd go back to my attorney's home at the end of the day, tired, exhausted, and disappointed until finally someone came in. And it was through this process of being like in another culture with all the barriers, with language, with barriers as well, that I began to understand that, you know, Jeff, most times you've manipulated people. You've been able to get things done. You've had your checklist and made things happen. But what you've done is manipulated people. And that did not work for me in Haiti. So I had to begin to understand How do I turn this around? Because this baby's life was in the balance here. How do I turn this around? How do I figure out how to motivate the people that I'm working with in this foreign country to my good and to this baby's good uh, as well? So in this situation and standing there with a Haitian government official, after telling this story from my perspective over and over, what I wanted to have happen, why I needed to have happen, and having this person just look back at me through the translator, with just this blank stare, I realized that my method of persuasion and my method of communication wasn't going to work. But one of the things I had learned about Haitians is how much they value their children and how much they love the babies and their, their culture. They're just jewels to the Haitian. So I turned the story around and I talked about her. I talked about how sick she was. I talked about how I had medical help ready for her. I talked about how I committed funds for her education. I talked about how my family would love her and we would raise her and we would give her the very best. And it was almost instantaneous that he just turned around, his face lit up, he signed the documents, and within 10 minutes, I was out the door with that document signed.
0: That's amazing. So it sounds like you kind of turned it around to be less about you and more about what you could offer them, right?
1: Exactly. It's more about my audience and what my, yeah. what my audience valued and what my audience wanted. My audience really didn't care that I wanted to adopt a baby. That, that was of no importance to him. But what he did care about was a, a fellow Haitian baby that was very sick and needed help. He cared about that. And when I convinced him then that I was going to be there, I was going to be the link to what he cared about and, and her success it all turned around. But I had to focus on what was important to him, not what was important to me.
2: Yeah. I, it's so funny you say that because I think I was just, I was talking about that earlier in the episode about how a lot of people think like persuasive conversation, it, like selling and anything like that, that you're t- dictating the conversation. Like you're trying to convince someone of what you want when really you're just listening and figuring out what they care about. And like, it, and, and that helps gauge the conversation. But it reminds me, when, when I was getting trained on like this topic on listening and communication, I remember we had to do these role plays and we would sit in front of this instructor and he would always try to kind of mess us up a little bit. And when you're new and you're, you're younger and you're learning kind of what you're selling and or what you're trying to communicate, you start memorizing things and you want to get them out. And so this guy, when he would like stump us, used to say, He used to say to us, like, oh, we I got you, like, you couldn't sell ice to an Eskimo. And we all used to get frustrated. And we'd be like, well, what?" and so finally one day I was going and I kind of sat in front of the class to make a joke, like, well, what if the Eskimo doesn't want ice? Because that's what we used to say about the guy, like, because he was just, he used to (laughs) annoy us. And he goes, well, that's a good question. He goes, but it's your job to find out if he wants ice. And I go, wow, you're so right. Like, it was almost that, like, aha moment in my training where I'm like, wait, you're so right. Like it's about me figuring out what I'm like, what to talk to him about because of what he would actually want. And it really resonated with me through the rest of that training because then I kind of, it clicked for me how kind of persuasive conversation and how to jumpstart those conversations actually take place. So I just, that reminded, your story just reminded me of that.
1: Absolutely. And to me, that's like what you have just said is like, the prime example of the difference of manipulation versus persuasion. When I'm manipulating, it's just about me getting what I want. When I am persuading, we are sharing ideas. We are sharing values. We're sharing what I offer, what the person's needs are, what the gaps are. And we're trying to find that place where it overlaps. And that's the sweet spot Uh, in in the chapter that I have on positioning your message so people say yes. I, I encourage people to look past binary options to see if there are any non-binary options that they could look at. Oftentimes, we think black, white, yes or no, mm-hmm. one or two. But could there be a non-binary option? Could could you find a unique path forward that meets that person's need? accomplishes what you want to accomplish as well, and both of you are happy.
0: Yeah. So, would you say then that any no can be turned into a yes with Ooh. the right with the right persuasive Ooh. techniques?
1: <laughs> well, that's a good question. Okay, so let me let me take it back just a little bit. I encourage people, don't push your audience to a no too soon. It's once you back a person into a corner and they say no, and we find this all the time working with political figures. You know, once <laughs> yeah. they have made a stand and they say no, it's really hard to pull them out. So make sure that you keep feeding information. Um, I talk a little bit about the ask culture versus the guest culture, and and in the in this culture that where you're like feeling them out, you continue to give information, you're trying to get feedback from them, try not to, to point, push them to the point that they say no too soon. It's a whole lot harder to move them away if you just continue to have a comp- – keep them in the maybe mode as long as possible.
0: Sounds it also- like dating. Sounds like dating, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Maybe you're- laughs> No, but, but I
2: also think it's, you, like, you almost, it's almost a game too because I, I also feel that you almost know if you're pushing too hard as well. You know, like you, You yeah. And if you're doing, if you're asking the right questions, like you should know if you're doing it the right way, if you're pushing too hard. And oftentimes I find myself that when I'm like, when I find myself being like, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know if I'm, if I'm pushing too hard, then I, I always think back and I'm like, well, there are probably like other things I could have asked or other things I could have said that would have made me like take away some of this fear, which makes me think I could have done a better job. So I agree with you. I think that if you're pushing so hard and you're afraid of no, then that means you it's either you didn't do a good job or you weren't really listening because you're still not reading that person um, Yeah, and you can't get a grasp on kind of what they're, which way they're leaning or whatnot.
1: And I think it's important to ask questions and especially to ask open-ended questions, not yes or no questions. It's amazing how much your audience will tell you. Yeah. If you'll just pause, uh, ask questions, give them the space to answer and give them ex- the space to express themselves, they often will. And, and you may hear some objections, you may hear some pushbacks, things that you can work toward to alleviate before you actually get to that ask.
2: I have a question. I'm I'm curious because I know that you've written, I, you've written a book, and you do a lot of these um, speeches, and you you work with a lot of people. But what are what's some like suggestions you have for like what would you suggest people read about or any types of books or lectures or things to help learn more about this topic to become an effective communicator? And and obviously, I want you to plug your own your own work as well, just because I'd like to know more about it. Because I think this topic. I mean, it's always something with a lot of issues with any type of job, any type of career, any type of relationship. And as Sarah just pointed out, even dating, this this topic is, is really beneficial. So what's some advice or areas that people, what people can do to learn more?
1: I am surprised, I'm pleasantly surprised, at how broad the audience is for this message that I, I have. Even dealing with with podcasts, so I've been on like entrepreneurship podcasts, I've been on business podcasts, I've been on fatherhood podcasts, and how about this? I have a podcast coming up where I'm going to be on with a licensed therapist, who are primary target are men that are having issues communicating sexually with their wives. So here I am, <laughs> I'm going to turn this around and have that type of conversation. However, I I will plug my book and I'll say my book is coming out in January and everything that we talked about, plus more, plus plenty of illustrations, plus questions to ponder uh, is in the book. And in the book, I walk through, like I explain the difference between manipulation and persuasion and I walk through like the phases of crafting your message, how you make a connection with your audience, how you, what we were just talking about, how you help others find their win and you really put your focus on them, how you position your message, how you create a call to action, how you become an industry expert. Um, and the, the final chapter is on trust, and I think trust yeah. is one of the, the biggest things that we need to work toward. Because without trust, people are not going to move forward with us. So, how do you establish trust with people?
2: I think I think that's really important is establish establishing trust because when once when you have that, and you're we say with my in my line of work, a trusted advisor, and where they like clients feel comfortable coming to you, and they know that they'll give you the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it helps you have those tough conversations and positive conversations because you know you have that trust and they know that you're coming at them with the truth. So I I think that would be a huge, interesting part to read in your book. What's,
0: What's the book called, by the way?
1: The book is called Unleashing Your Superpower, Why Persuasive Communication is the Only Force You Will Ever Need.
0: Definitely going to check that out. Yeah. And, and to add on um, to what you guys were just saying around, you know, that trust and that that real need to connect, we we tried something in my one of my teams, this thing called radical candor. I don't know, Jeff, if you've talked about this at all in your work, but this idea that to really be a high-functioning team, you have to be able to... Be open and honest about everything. Like give people feedback, but also build the core of it is to build the relationship first before you can have that ability to persuade and to build true team spirit across across the organization. So I don't know if you've if you've done a lot around this idea of a radical candor candor. If you've uh, come across that at all,
1: well, you know one of the number one reasons that teams fail is lack of communication. And and you're right, if if people trust you. If they do believe that you have their back, you have their best interest at heart, they're going to be more likely to open up to have a connection with you and sometimes in the workplace, maybe we like kind of frown on this just a little bit, but there is something that's powerful in a workplace environment when you trust the people that you're with, when you really like the people that you're with, when you can be honest and open with them, it just opens up productivity and just pleasure of being there, which is great for uh, retention of employees as well.
0: yeah, absolutely. I know. You know, just from my own experience with it, it, was something I was hesitant to try at first. But then, the more we did it, the more you could feel the connection. We would protect each other as a team. So, I think it was an interesting concept that uh, could definitely work well in a lot of different, a lot of different places—not just organizations, but anywhere where you're doing team building of any kind.
1: Absolutely, in any relationship. Anytime you're in something, some type of relationship with another person, whether it's a couple, whether it's kids, work, social circles, whatever it happens to be.
2: Yeah, good stuff. Um, well, I think Jeff, I, we really appreciate you coming on. And before we kind of wrap up, um, Sarah and I like to do these little segments at the end and we like to switch it up and mostly just, uh, so that the listeners can kind of get to know us a little better. And Sarah was kind of filling me in on some of your background before we recorded this episode. So we thought, um a good segment would be Hidden Talents um today to share because from what it sounds like you're you actually are pretty talented. So we'll we're gonna dedicate this segment to hidden talents. And uh, would you like anything you'd like to share? That's
0: interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, most people just see me on stage speaking. What they don't know is that my background and my undergraduate degree uh, is in classical piano. I was uh, my undergraduate degree is in is in music. Um, and I play piano, I play on piano in different venues, um, love playing, um, and it's, it's like a pure passion of mine just to be on stage playing. Wow, that's,
2: that's a real talent. <laughs> I, <laughs> I absolutely cannot play an instrument, that's for sure. Me neither. Never.
1: Well, when uh, I, you win. When I was an undergraduate in school, I had to learn how school, we had to learn how to play all the instruments of the orchestra, um, and then my minor instrument was an organ. So I was always practicing and uh, learning something while all my friends were out playing. I was stuck in the practice room. <laughs>
2: I, yeah, my I begged my dad to let me play the trumpet. Um, I think it was in like fifth grade or something. And the first night I had it, I did it wrong or something, and I broke all the blood vessels in my lips, <laughs> oh. and my lips, my lips, like turned blue and like blew up, like literally oh. were swollen, sh- like basically swollen, like shut. And so I quit. I never took it up. Oh, <laughs> so man. yeah, that was like my only
0: experience. But no, that's that's really cool. Yeah, the only instrument um, I can play is the recorder, and that's that was in like first grade. So
2: yeah, <laughs> You mastered that. I after. did. I did. Yeah.
0: Crushed it. Yep. That's- Sarah, wait. wait, So, Sarah, is that your
2: hidden talent that you can play the recorder? Because I definitely didn't know that. No,
0: no, I I don't think I can any longer play the recorder. Um, No, you know, I think my claim to fame, my hidden talent, is that I have never been beat in Mario Kart. I'm just saying, like, I'm just
2: wait, like, like ever, wait, the ever, like
0: the
2: N64 Mario Kart, like the old N64
0: Mario Kart, never been beat. You know, I'm just I'm just putting it out there. If anyone wants to be, challenge me, I'm,
2: uh, yeah, challenge accepted. But that's definitely yeah. That's I didn't know that, but yeah, we'll play. All right. If, I'm sure one of our <laughs> friends. I'm sure one of our guy friends has an old N64. I, I think I
0: have. <laughs> <laughs> you probably have I yeah, practice. Uh, you know, I don't go out to the bars. I just stay in and play N64. Yeah, I
2: play N64. <laughs> nice.
0: Well, I think we can probably
2: wrap here because I don't have any hidden talents. Uh, that's of, not true,
0: uh, Lindsay. <laughs> I, I know one of your <laughs> hidden talents. Yeah.
2: Yeah I'll, yeah, I'll admit it, but um, yeah, so I'll just admit it because I know like some people already know this, but I usually try to keep it quiet, but whatever, sake of transparency, um, I can ride a unicycle, I can juggle, I can ride a unicycle and juggle, <laughs> can ride a six-foot tall unicycle backwards-forwards with one foot. So that is my hidden talent. I have ridden in parades before. My brother can also do it. Um, my hometown, just a backstory, my hometown... In Maine, they in gym class. If you could juggle, they invited you to stay after and learn how to unicycle. And it's kind of a like kind of turned into like an after school thing. <laughs> the, and we did parades and stuff. So I will admit that I can ride a unicycle and do all of that circus art stuff. But I'll never I'll deny it only to the listeners. I'll ever admit it.
0: So, <laughs> that's <laughs> and amazing. that's that's what that. And that's my hidden talent, which is embarrassing. But. That's amazing. Anyway, I think we all, we've all got some solid hidden talents here. So, uh, you know. I would say so. talented. Group. But Jeff, Jeff, thank you. And Jeff, who has the actual hidden talent.
2: Um, thank you uh, very much for being a part of the podcast and talking about this. It's just a topic when, when we, Sarah, started talking with you, we thought it was so important. And we really
0: appreciate you coming on today. Awesome. And uh, so, everyone, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Entry Level Podcast, and give us a review. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys.